Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, the place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazemeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good evening. And together we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. Today is a fun episode that we are going to basically imagine walking into a grocery store with me and Joey. We're in the checkout line. We peer over in the line and I see a magazine on the shelf. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. That's a whole big special edition of eating well. And it's all about food. And the cover reads what to eat for life. And imagine we take it home, we read it together and we talk through it. That's what this episode is going to be. The purpose being um, that there's a lot of mainstream dietary advice, um, (laughs) information. Sometimes it feels like propaganda. Sometimes it's truly educational. And there's just a lot of stuff to decipher. And for folks who care at all about food, even just from a culinary perspective or farming or the land or our environment or policy, it can be really confusing how to navigate what everyone is saying and the different messages and who's saying what. And and so I just want to have a conversation, sort of walk article by article through this magazine uh, that I did. I picked up at a local grocery store here in town and we're going to talk through it. What is eating well? You know, it's a magazine. I don't know. I don't typically read this, so I'm going to be really honest and say I'm not really familiar with the publication, but I just know it's like a health and Mm. probably fitness magazine at some point. It does say it's a special edition. And like I said, the title says, What to Eat for Life, Feel Better, Be Stronger, Live Longer. And, you know, since I'm looking at the cover, we'll just jump right in and The first thing I noticed is if you can imagine it's like a big wreath of food and it kind of goes around in a rainbow circle. So it starts out red, moves to purple, Mm. green, yellow, orange. They're all plant foods. And uh, I actually have a really old post called Eat the Rainbow because Mm. that was like, right, a big thing in the USDA, my plate, right? Like eat the rainbow, get your fruits and veggies, which I think is great. We should be eating plant foods of all different colors. But they always leave out the other food groups. That would also be in that color, right? So you could throw up a steak mm. in the red category. Mm. Some liver would be like dark purple. Mm. You could throw up egg, beautiful egg yolks. But the cover of this magazine is all plants. I see raspberries. I see chilies. I see apples, beets. You know, I don't even know what this purple thing is. Blueberries. And I mean, it's interesting looking at the cover. I feel like there's a, there's zero protein on the whole cover. There's zero protein. Not There's not even beans or legumes. And here's my thing. I think a lot of times, you know, covers, whatever, we just want it to be beautiful. We have to think about the message we're sending. Mm. And I actually came, I, I learned this firsthand. If you, And I actually told this story on my Instagram. But if you missed that, I originally had a cover for the nutrition curriculum. It was a cover of like a bowl of you know, kind of like prepped meat, like steak ready to throw on the grill. There was like a beautiful glass bottle of what I would call, you know, high quality olive oil. And I had this cover all beautifully laid out. I had 150 prints already printed. The following day was going to be our launch of Homegrown. This was April 2021. And at the time, I was in conversation with Sally Fallon Morell, who's the president and founder of the Weston A. Price Foundation. And she was just graciously giving me notes on the book because she was like, this is really needed. We need someone to create something for kids. And I sent her a copy of the cover and she hated it. And, and her first words were like, the, the meat looks too lean 
and the oil looks like it could be vegetable oil. And right, like we don't, we're not putting labels. So it's all up to just mm-hmm. us deciphering. And the point that she really conveyed to me, and as hard and painful as that moment was, because I had to send all those books back <laughs> and design a new cover and rebind them, my poor printer. Um, the the thing she really conveyed to me is that like, hey, we have to be really careful about the imagery when we're talking about food, because even looking at this article or even just looking at this cover. I can then fall under the assumption that plant food is always healthier. Mm-hmm. Like in the grand scheme of things, plants are. I mean, it's a pretty cover. And that's, oh, what yeah. that's what they're going for. It's you a know? stunning white and, and, background. And I think there's, you know, there's probably some ignorance in this. Yeah. Right. It's, they, they didn't sit down and think to themselves. I can almost guarantee you. I've never even met a vegan that says that, that you shouldn't eat protein. <laughs> if anything, they're the first ones to say, oh, I get plenty of protein. Right. You know, right. That conversation that I've. Anyways, the the ring here, this wreath. You have to put a picture up or something so people can see this. Yeah, maybe we can link it to the show notes. Yeah, it looks like a Christmas wreath of fruits and vegetables. And there's like chili peppers, rhubarb, carrots, oranges, what, tangerines, oranges, lemons. What is that? Lemongrass? Yeah, Lemons? yeah. Broccolini? Mm-hmm. Snap pea? Asparagus? Joey's going to list them all. Yeah, so just right off the bat, you know, obviously I'm going to dissect this thing. And I'm going to say it's very plant-based leaning. And Mm. if we're honest with ourselves, everywhere we look is very plant-based leaning right now. And I think just to start off the conversation, there's a little bit of me that's sort of like in defense posture. Because I feel like I'm one of those people, you know, in this fight trying to um, say, hey, listen, guys, the conversation might not be... Um, super productive if we're going this plant-based versus animal-based mm-hmm. dichotomy. Like we might need to have a different conversation. Mm. But you know, with that in mind, I do see this, and I'm immediately I'm like, oh, of course, of course, it's all plants. Of yeah. course, they couldn't have any animal protein. They couldn't even have dairy, butter, eggs, things that you could get from animals without their death, hypothetically. Like, and so. That's kind of what I want to walk through today. And, and of course, we're just dissecting the cover, but I think we should jump right in. And there's like a secondary cover, right? And it's all vegetables again. So back to this, the, the brief story, I just think whenever we're talking about food, because it is sort of polarizing or politicizing, because there's policy behind it and it does impact our lives, mm-hmm. I think we have to be really careful about our imagery. And if I was going to be on the editorial team of this magazine, I would have told them that. Hey, we're, how are we representing all of our food groups? We're, n- we're not even close to that. We're literally only with plants. Um, and so th- right off the bat, that was my initial sort of feeling about it. <sighs> So it gives a it gives a good introduction, um, and even now, like I'm flipping the page, I do see a carton of eggs. I gotta give that to them. I, I'm happy I see the eggs. They are next to quite a bit of vegetable, um, you know, produce laying next to it. But it it really starts out trying to paint the picture that Americans have a hard time figuring out what to eat, and I couldn't agree more. I I do believe that we have an issue with that. And then, unfortunately, um, I'll read this quote right here. It says, we have long known that getting a variety of foods and eating in moderation are two cornerstones of a sound diet and that most, if not all, of our foods should be plant-based. Even that sentence alone, within the first five paragraphs, 
I was like, whoa, we're already jumping in here. Okay, and then it gives you, for reference, vegetables, fruits, legumes, whole grains, nuts, seeds, and healthy fats. Foods such as seafood, poultry, meat, dairy, and eggs may or may not be included. And then it goes on to say, we can still get all the nutrients our bodies need without them, though it's somewhat easier to do so when they are a part of our diet. Okay, so I could wrap up this entire first article based on that short little paragraph. And I, I think it's such a bold statement whenever I hear the, that like, hey, plant food, you know, as a default is your best source of nutrients. Because for those of us who sort of sit on the other side of the fence and we're saying, hey, actually, we feel like the nutrient concentration of things like organ meats, butter, egg yolks, raw milk is incredibly high compared to the concentration of vitamins and minerals maybe in like a head of broccoli or a cup of beans. When we have those disagreements, it doesn't ever seem to come to a resolve. It just feels like we throw out these, hey, pretty much all your food should be plants. And then like if you get a couple, you know, a little bit here and there, that's fine. But really, you're fine without it. And it takes me back to that moment um, where Diana Rogers is talking about her book on Joe Rogan's show, talking about like, hey, we can throw up vitamin A content or, vi- or protein content of a steak and a cup of beans. But like, let's look at the volume you have to consume for both of those end nutrient goals. Mm. And then let's also talk about the bioavailability. And I think that that can kind of be a buzzword and, and really easy to hide behind to say, oh, I have a bioavailable source. But it's it's true. It's, it's, it's things that we've been eating for a long time because our bodies are satiated by them. And to me, the first question I wrote down when I was reading this article was, is it realistic or financially possible to truly get all of your nutrients from plant foods? Because the imaging, again, I'm going to tell you right now, I can't afford to buy like beautiful beets and what is this right here? Turnip. Turnip and beautiful like button mushrooms and these watermelon um, radishes. radishes and asparagus. I'm like, give me an index here. Asparagus, which is so expensive. Um, tomatillos. We got carrots. We've got green onions. We've got big, big, beautiful bulk bags of all kinds of beans. I don't know that I could walk into the store and honestly find all of that at my Kroger or my local grocery store. I mean, you might be able to afford it. I mean, like, like vegetables are typically not like ridiculous ridiculously expensive for every think. meal i mean i guess that's a that's a good point right because if, if you're eating nothing but veggies yeah that would be that's a lot that's that a lot expensive i mean meat's more expensive than veggies though absolutely but the amount that you eat is less right and that again it goes back to that density yeah. thing and we'll get into that in one of the articles actually because it gives a very interesting comparison that makes me chuckle a little bit but so anyways th- this whole first article could be summarized by you know that kind of it felt like a nonchalant it literally says in parentheses if not all your food should be plant-based and then it goes down in one of the final paragraphs it says so the question is what is the healthiest diet Um, It doesn't really need to be answered. Instead, think of the way people were eating. um, Think of the way of eating that people were choosing long before the food industry stepped in. And now I'm like, oh, they're speaking my language because we're talking about like the industrialization Mm -hmm. and the development of industry that that kind of came over when we took out 
um, individual agrarian culture and farms and we kind of like mass produce this stuff right that's the food industry 200 years ago there was no industry Mm. behind food it was just food Mm. And so they're saying, you know, how did we eat before the food industry? And they and they give that out. They say, plan your meals around <laughs> colorful fruits and vegetables, earthly whole grains and hearty legumes, satisfying nuts and nut butters and seeds. And I was like, wait a minute. We're not making nut butters mm. without the food industry. So what are we talking? I mean, I don't know a lot of people that are grinding up peanuts mm. to make their own homemade nut butter. Um satiating nuts nut butter seeds healthy fats optimal to moderate amounts of seafood eggs lean meats poultry and dairy products so they're saying years ago before the you know before industry came in before before capital before big companies came through and changed the way we eat that we were eating no meat Lean meat only. Yeah, it's again. It goes, Does it even say lean meat on there? Yeah, it says lean meat. Ah, okay. Lean meat, poultry, that. and dairy product. But ah, okay. okay, if I want to be really, did you say that and I missed it, or did you just leave that? I out? did say that. Oh, you probably just spaced out for a minute. Go back in the recording and confirm. Yeah, okay. it's a good thing I got this yeah, computer yeah. recording our entire conversation. There you go. I should utilize that more often. I know. So, anyways, even if I dialed into the dairy product situation. Like, I could go so deep into this and be like, all right, let's talk about dairy before the industrialization, right? Let's, I just did a full podcast on that. Yeah. I, we did another full podcast. I could talk for hours about dairy. Hmm. And it's um, the process by which it is denatured and refined because of the industrialization of that product, the commercialization of it. Let's talk about lean meats. You're telling me that if you're butchering a cow, a pig, a chicken, you're cutting off all the fat? How are they identif- how are they defining healthy fats in this paragraph? It's almost like they're listing off huge food groups but not giving you the detailed dialed in version. So you're frustrated with the fact that they're calling them lean meats instead of just meat. I do. I do because Well, why are they saying that? Because of the fat conversation. So, so like what's it, what is the fat conversation? The fat conversation is in the whole it's in a whole next section. So I mean, we can talk about it if you want. Um, well, what is it before you read? What do you mean? I'm the, saying the issue with animal fats ties back to cholesterol and it ties back to this assumption that saturated fat which is so so fats are made of all different kinds of types of fat but mostly animal fats have a higher concentration of saturated fat molecules versus unsaturated fat Mm. doesn't mean they have no unsaturated fat it's just usually they're higher in saturated fat Mm. that's why you see them solid at room temperature your lard your tallow your coconut oil all high in saturated yeah, fat. Totally. Saturated fat just means that that molecule has all of the carbons connected to it. Yeah, I know, I know saturated and unsaturated fats, but what? So having high cholesterol is bad. Yeah. Is it? I, I'm laughing because you're kind of jumping the gun here, but we can talk about it if you want. No, I'm just curious because, like, I feel like we're always talking about the fat conversation, but I'm like, it's not like eating fat makes you fat. Right. Well, we know that now, but. Um, 15 years ago, that was absolutely what the, what the assumption was. And so okay. this is what happened. There was a study done um, by Ansel Keys, Ankel Keys, I don't know how he pronounces his name, um, that basically came to the conclusion that saturated fat raises cholesterol. Mm. And so I was really interested by this. And so what I did as I was reading this article was I went and listened to some modern day experts on saturated fat and listened to a podcast by Dr. Mark Hyman, mm. who is a great real food, um, functional MD. He does say some things that I'm like, oh, I don't 
know if I agree with that, but he's just on a different, obviously he's, he's got a different, um, lean than I might have, but, uh, he, he puts out some good information. And so he had this whole podcast on cholesterol and the issue with cholesterol is that, um, typically when you're going to get a blood panel done at your doctor, they're looking at levels of LDL and HDL, I believe. I, I should probably get those those numbers, those letters accurate. Um, but you're looking at like the, quote, good type of cholesterol and the, quote, bad type of cholesterol. But what I learned from this podcast was like the numbers can tell you something, but we're actually looking at the molecular size of your, of your, of each cholesterol bit of cholesterol because when you get your numbers back at your doctor it's just talking about the overall weight Mm. you have this much weight in your blood serum of this cholesterol and this much of this type and so he was saying you really want your 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 cholesterol particles to be big like beach balls because those can bounce around your your um, vascular system with no issue It, it comes an issue when when they're small like golf balls and they can build up and stick to the edge create plaque then creating blockages in your veins, then creating high blood pressure, then putting you at risk for a heart attack or stroke. Mm. Okay, so it all comes down to like blood flow through the body. You have these these things in our in our body that have a purpose. Cholesterol is is incredibly important for so many different things. And yet we went through this crazy phase where we said, oh my goodness, saturated fat raises cholesterol, the bad type. We have to figure this out. When I just listened to an hour and a half of this podcast saying, hey, we can talk about numbers all day long, but do you even know the size of your molecules? Do you even know the size of the particles floating around there? Mm-hmm. Because he said, I, could, I, I saw this old lady with, uh, it was crazy, like over 300 cholesterol numbers, but she was fine mm-hmm. because it was, it's more nuanced than that. So it's funny that you asked that question and you're kind of sitting here confused because they they go through the fat um, sort of like change in dietary advice in this article, in, in this magazine, but then they still use it, they, they pr- the, the disproven arguments they still use later on to sort of prove their point that plants mm. are still better. And so it's it's something I feel like, We've now acknowledged on like the public stage of health that cholesterol is is not, dietary cholesterol first and foremost isn't always a direct indicator that you're going to raise your blood serum levels, and also saturated fats are not necessarily to be feared. Actually, we would say saturated fats contain a lot of amazing things in them, and that we would prefer saturated over polyunsaturated, and yet we still see it used in some of the. Um, arguments for these plant-based diets, these polyunsaturated fats, and and even in the oil guide, right? It's they're suggesting extra virgin olive oil, avocado oil, corn oil, mm. canola oil, peanut oil, mm. and grapeseed oil. And if you um, tune into the the USDA podcast we did, we walked through all of those fats and sort of the issue we had with. Um, the prescription of consuming only polyunsaturated fats, these these liquid at room temperature fats that can mm. often be really unstable when they're heated. They, they don't really have great shelf stability, and yet we put them in these plastic bottles and stick them under fluorescent lighting in the grocery store. There's not a whole lot of protection, and mm. so by the time they get to you, they might already be oxidized or rancid. And that's the issue that we never hear talked about. Whereas a saturated fat is stable mm. because it's saturated, right? So 
yeah, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or, or what you're feeling, but no, get me back to the magazine. What else we got here? So I'm, I, I did not know there was a, a valuable purpose of cholesterol. I feel like I was always under the impression that cholesterol just meant you're going to have that a heart attack bad, right? or you're going to have a stroke or something. Right. And, and even in the, um, even in the podcast when they were likening it, they were saying, okay, this part of your blood is, is kind of like the dump truck, and then this is kind of like the dirt, and the cholesterol is like the dirt. And I was like, oh, come on. Like, can't we give a better analogy to talk about, like, how cholesterol is utilized? Like, it, you need it to make all of your hormones. You mm. need like, – you absolutely need it. It's a vital part of our body. But the issue is we've, we've seen in, like, clinical research these correlations between high cholesterol – um, and, you know, heart disease. And that's the big thing, right? We're, Americans are very concerned about heart disease. Americans' cardiovascular systems are suffering. There's no lie about that. Mm. It's just we have, we have different conclusions when we dive into the, into the research. And so they, they did a whole article called You Don't um, Need to Fight Fat. It says bacon is everywhere. Butter is the new darling. Seems that fat is back big time, but should it be? Question mark. And so that's kind of the whole article they go over. They talk about the different types of level, the LDL, bad cholesterol, the HDL, which is the good cholesterol. And, and again, they tie it back to the saturated fat. And they talk about that study. But then they talk about how we said, hang on, wait a minute. It doesn't necessarily, like, we, we, we're going back and forth. We're flip-flopping. And this is where I like to tell people that nutrition science and, and dietary research is like 100 years old. Mm. Like it's pretty new. And so anytime you're looking at something and you're just looking at numbers, it's like you're looking at a three-dimensional shape, but you're only seeing it in two dimension. And so that's, that's why I have a really hard time when people are like arguing over data points. Because mm. at this point, we can, we can put data points behind. You say 100 years? It seems like a long time for dietary In the reasons. grand scheme of things, to yeah, say I, that we have a, I mean, 100 years being generous. Okay. It's not 100 years of clinical double-blind placebo research. Yeah, it's yeah. 100 years of, oh, wait a minute, what is this little molecule? We're going to call that a vitamin. Okay. So, okay. maybe you think 100 years is long. 100 years? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not. I personally don't. I'm not 100 years old. I feel like, you know, pretty long. When you're talking about, this is a good point. When you're talking about something that is shaping something as important as daily nourishment for humans, mm. and you're using information that is so recent, I think it's a really dangerous spot to be in. And this is why I constantly point people back to, like, let's look at the history. Let's get in there. Like, mm -hmm. let's look at what people were were eating and doing and living and how they were functioning. It's not just food. It's, mm -hmm. it's all, it's all of their lifestyle. Mm. I know there's a lot of that we can't replicate because we have, we have luxuries. There's things that we're not going to, yeah, no one's going to go out. Yeah, don't get, yeah. Don't ditch your car, your air conditioning. Your, yeah. I mean, you can, some people can choose to do that, yeah. but okay. anyways, um, yeah. So it was a, to summarize the fat article. Um, I think you, I can summarize it by saying the, the oil guide, Okay, what's missing? Extra virgin olive oil, avocado, corn, canola, peanut, grapeseed. Where are any, where's, they won't even put coconut oil in here because it's just too dang high in saturated fat for them. Mm. Even though they just talked about how the saturated fat cholesterol connection has been debunked, essentially. Mm. They won't put animal fats on there. 
because who knows? Yeah, it's funny because like I remember when there was this weird tension where butter was was like the worst thing you could eat. And this is around the time that like Paula Dean on the Food Network was, yes. was was like eating butter and everything. And I think they mentioned her actually in the article. There was like no, no, no. They mentioned Julia Child. Got it. Who is like the original. Yeah, like Paula Dean's kind of a fight. No, you know. no. Julia Child's OG. Yeah. Right. But like there was just like this general like thought when you saw Paula Dean cook is, you know, well, oh man, I bet you all Paula Dean's food tastes so good because she just cooks a ton of butter and sugar and, you know, just fat mm-hmm. and, you know, junk, right? Is kind of how it was portrayed, I feel like. Yeah. In a lot of the culinary world, at least. And I remember, I mean, I remember a lot of my chefs growing up, they would identify people like Paula Dean and like Rachel Ray as as TV cooks, is <laughs> what they would call them. Rachel Ray used to be my favorite, 30 would, minute meals. They were like, they used to, dude, the culinary world used to just rag on them. I believe it. And, um, that, you know, I remember one of my chefs being a really big Anthony Bourdain fan, mm-hmm, which he's, mm-hmm. I think he passed away. Yes, he did, unfortunately. He, he some hard Tragically times. so. Hard times, Bourdain. Anyways, um, I think, I'm trying to think of who else. I mean, Emerald Gossie, I feel like, is kind of the in-between. Uh, he's a little yeah. bit of a TV chef, but also. Wolfgang Puck, I think they were more interested in oh, the yeah. chef world. Yeah. Anyways, it, when you would see somebody cooking with all, like, like the, it was almost like, it felt like a cop out because you're using like butter. Yeah, it was like, oh, you're of course your food tastes good. You use butter. We're making food over here with grapeseed oil. E V O O was kind of Rachel Ray's thing. Yeah. So that and the garbage bowl, never forget. She she made a big impression on me when I was a young twelve year old kid. The I used I, to think I could cook it, in thirty minutes. The, just the the point I was trying to make is that it butter almost turns into this. If you use it, of course, your food's going to taste good because it's unhealthy. Yeah. And unhealthy stuff tastes great and healthy stuff doesn't taste as good. Like that was like the world back then. And it was like, if you want to be healthy, your food kind of has to taste like butt. And if you, if you want (laughs) to, if you're down with, you know, butter, you know, you better, you better see your doctor about your cholesterol once a week. And if you're going to eat, you know, shellfish and have melted butter with it, you know you're screwed it's luxurious i think it's interesting butter's not even mentioned in this fat guide yeah. so the point is like at the end of every article they are trying to say hey this is kind of what the dietary advice has been and here's like a snapshot of things you can look to for foods to source so like these are their like approved um fats right and i see zero percent animal fat i don't see any i don't see duck fat bacon fat i mean if you flip through the nutrition workbook our fat guide looks like coconut oil lard tallow um, poultry fat right would be chicken fat duck fat beautiful things you can use to fry and cook and confit whatever and then we have like we do we have olive oil in there we have avocado oil because those are those are fruit oils Um, The difference between that versus like a canola oil, that is when you're taking the seed of the plant. It's all about like which part of the plant we're we're Mm. utilizing, right? Or in the case of animal, obviously it's an animal fat. But canola is a great example of just the most highly refined thing in the world because canola, there's no canola plant. And I've said this before, but the canola plant is really the rapeseed plant genetically modified in in the 1970s by some scientists in Canada 
And because they basically manipulated the rapeseed plant to contain a lower amount of this thing called ureic acid, which can be toxic to humans if it's in too high amounts. So they lowered their ureic acid in this beautiful yellow flower that we then take the seeds and we squeeze and press. And I mean, it's a gross process. And they they came up with this name that's an acronym canola stands for canadian oil um that the c-a-n is the canadian part oil low acid that's the l-a low ureic acid they just don't throw the e in there probably because they're like no one it doesn't form a word if you mm. have that extra vowel but so canola is an interesting one because i always see that as like the heart healthy mm. great cooking fat high smoke point low flavor profile like it's really versatile i even see chefs using it I mean, of course they are. You guys mm-hmm. used to use it in culinary school. And I always pit that against butter. Mm. And I'm like, do people understand that butter, you go to a cow, you milk the cow, you skim the cream, the fat layer off the top, you literally churn it, which is just a fancy way of saying you mix it up until it separates into buttermilk and butter fat. And then you have butter. Like, I could make it in my backyard if I had a cow. Mm-hmm. Canola oil, I'd have to get access to these, like... It's like a scientific experiment. Exactly. Yeah. I'd, I'd have to get access to these genetically modified versions of this rape plant, and then I'd have to... It would be pr- bad branding if they would have, you know, called it... Rapeseed oil? Rapeseed well, oil. in other countries, they still do. Okay. So in other countries it might be <laughs> it's, it's, better, but in this country, no, would, yeah, it would not. It wouldn't be flying off the shelves. It would not be flying off the shelves. But like you'll hear Gordon Ramsay say rapeseed oil. But there's also grapeseed oil. So I think people get confused and mm. like, is it a typo? Is he talking about grapeseed oil? Um, if you remember when we did the podcast on the first raw dairy podcast, and I was talking about how Oatly uses canola oil to to achieve their like flat fat profile in their mm-hmm. milk to mimic that of dairy they use canola but they call it rapeseed because it's like a swedish company so in sweden they 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 refer to it as rapeseed and there you can't have organic canola oil so in that case it gets a little fudgy because it's like okay it's not genetically modified but it's still coming from this yellow rape plant some people call it the rape plant some people call it canola who the heck knows at the end of the day it's a seed oil Mm. and that's a big distinction that we like to make everywhere we talk about fat because where the fat is coming from matters right like you can render down fat butchered off of an animal and get um different types of fat like there's the suet there's like this the the unique fat around the kidneys there's like the hard you know chunky back fat there's all different parts Mm. right same with a plant you can you can take the um fat from the seed or you can take the fat from the fruit of the plant however that looks coconut is is another example of a fruit oil and um there's just those are missing here Mm. they don't even talk about butter or or coconut oil or any animal fat and so again that's where i'm like this plant-based lean is kind of subtle because sometimes you don't think about like plant versus animal when you're talking about cooking fats but like for me i do i think about that a lot because I rely on on animal fats to Mm -hmm. cook in all the time. So that kind of wraps up the fat article. Um, Again, they get some things right and then they kind of go back on their their word as we'll see later in the the magazine. So moving on, they have a whole article on sodium, which I think is fascinating. Um, They basically talk about, you know, sodium is the reason why we always crave foods. It's why things are really... 
um, enjoyable to us. We like our salty, crispy, crunchy, you know, whatever. It, it makes us, it, it satisfies this inner craving. Mm. And they go back and forth on like how much sodium we should have. And at first they're talking about, hey, we need to reduce it down to these levels and these these this group of the population with maybe a prerequisite to a cardiovascular issue or high blood pressure or whatever should maybe cut back on sodium. But then later it says, oh, just kidding. Actually, everyone far exceeds both of these minimums. So like, let's just let people be. It's confusing because they're talking about milligrams here and and. The issue that I had with this whole salt piece is that they didn't really break down the biggest differentiator I see, which is table salt and unrefined salt. So they don't really dial down to like what the food is. They're just talking about like levels of sodium and, you know, where we find these and what we should do and what the NBE says here and what we should say. And then on the very side where it says seasoning with salt, it's kind of like their their version of the, the oil guide. They mm. have table salt, they have kosher salt, they have sea salt, and they have finishing salt. And it's still not really dialing in. Mm. Because you could say, like, these, this is a mined salt from this part of the country, or this is a, a sea salt from dehydrated seawater. And they could have covered, like, some really outstanding salt companies that are doing like artisan salt and and maintaining other minerals and things, but they don't. They do the classic, we're going to dial into a nutrient, talk about whether it's good or bad for you, how much of it you should have, and then we're not going to talk about the who, what, where, when, and why of the food. And that's kind of my, that's my issue with. So with this, this salt, right, like they didn't, they didn't want to come on here and highlight, you know, artisan salt makers they wanted to talk about sodium sodium and and the consumption levels that you should be considering and so you know you know i feel like you hyper fixed on like they didn't talk about good salt you know but like i don't know i wouldn't have expected that i think the interesting thought that i would have is is like well are there appropriate sodium intake levels and inappropriate sodium intake levels because i feel like that's what they're really talking about here and and I, i guess I don't, I don't know. What do you think about that? So I'll just read from the article. There's a second, third paragraph in it. says, most people eat about 3,400 milligrams of sodium a day. Downsizing our sodium intake to 1,500 milligrams daily would have major health benefits, slashing 16 million of the nation's 68 million cases of hypertension and saving $26 billion in healthcare costs, according to the Centers of Disease Control, the CDC. Okay, so it says that. It says everyone's kind of eating 3,400 milligrams. We should really cut it down to, what, 1,500? So that's like in half Mm. or even more so. And then it goes on to say in 2004, um, the Institute of Medicine, the IOM, agreed advising anyone over the age of 50 of African-American descent or with high blood pressure Um, chronic kidney disease or diabetes, so again, sectors of the population that they're concerned about, anyone in that category should limit their sodium to 1,500 milligrams. Okay, so it says that, like, they're basically the Institute of Medicine is, like, catching on to the CDC stance. They're basically making this statement, okay, guys, now stick to your sodium under 1,500 milligrams. Mm. Okay. And then it says that's nearly half of all Americans, that population. Okay, so people over 50 of African-American descent, high blood pressure, chronic kidney disease, and diabetes. What do you mean of African-American descent? 
it that is just a one of the um categories that they're putting in they're saying that they need to like that what people of african-american descent need to watch out for sodium yeah that's the stupidest thing ever. I don't, I don't know why. There might be some biological reason. I have no clue. Okay, so then it says the rest of us were advised. It can't be true, right? I have no idea. That seems crazy. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to continue. Then it says the rest of us were advised to keep our numbers below 2,300 milligrams. The amount is roughly a teaspoon of salt. Okay, so it says everyone's kind of at 34. These certain populations need to knock it down to 1,500. And then everyone else is cool around 2300 is basically what this summary is saying. Then in May 2013, so nearly 10 years later after the IOM kind of jumped on the CDC's requirements, in an apparent about face, the IOM released a report concluding that too little sodium may be equally problematic to some people, particularly those with congestive heart failure. Even more startling, it announced that there was no solid evidence that people with diabetes, kidney disease, or cardiovascular disease would benefit from the previous 1,500 milligram cap and instead stated that 2,300 milligrams would be more appropriate. So we chilled for 10 years. And they were like, they were like, oh, well, too little sodium can also be painful. This is why I get frustrated because it depends on what kind of salt you're consuming. There's a different concentration of sodium mm. in table salt than like an unrefined salt. And that's why when we say it's about a teaspoon of salt, I'm like, how can you guys even say that? You don't even know what kind of salt they're using. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? That's why I was like... Mm. You guys need to talk about the types of salt before you talk about the Cause, measurements cause of salt. Okay, now I understand. Because you're saying the type of salt can highly affect the sodium level. Yeah. I believe table salt is just like straight sodium, right? Yeah, and I, but, but if you're going to get an unrefined salt, those crystals might be bigger. There's less sodium in there. Mm. There's more mineral intake. So there's, there's, there's other things going on. Okay. Okay. So sodium is a mineral. What? Yes. So, yes. Okay. okay so, so we're going on. Or is it a chemical? It's both. <laughs> it's chemical compound is Na, I believe. Is that a chemical though, or is it a, is sodium a mineral? Is it both? You know. Chemistry. Someone knows. Let's ask. Uh, Someone tell me. Someone out there tell me. Is it a mineral or a chemical? Okay, so now we're back to telling everyone that twenty three hundred milligrams would be more appropriate. Okay. So did you stick with me? We were at 34, dropped down to 15. No, just kidding. 15 is too low. Now go up to 23. Round Everyone's that, cool yeah. at 2,300 milligrams it, now. However, if you read the fine print, the report's fine print, you'll find that the Institute of Medicine admits that the data used to make the updated 2013 recommendations contains gaps in its methodology. What's more, shortly after the 2013 announcement, one of the main studies that the IOM reported relied on was retracted by the journal heart was the journal's name leaving us more confused than ever okay so they're just throwing like all of these if but then whatever um, yet perhaps we're missing the point it says by debating whether 1500 or 2300 is the magic number we're dancing on the head of a pin says jane henley who's an md the chair of the 2010 iom committee um, on the committee on strategies to reduce sodium intake in the united states Okay, we're all eating so much more sodium than any of those numbers that if we reduce our intake between 15 to 23 a day, we'd all be a lot better. 
Even if most Americans were interested in eating less sodium, less sodium, whittling down our intake seems like nearly impossible task. That's because sodium saturates are food supply, occurring naturally in many foods, but also lurking in the foods that don't even taste salty, like breakfast cereals and jarred pastas. Adding more naturally low-sodium foods to your diet, like potatoes and nuts, keep the salt intake in check. I would disagree with that statement because every time I cook potatoes, Salted up. I'm putting so much salt on there. So if you followed with me basically reading this entire article to you, you see the tactical strategy of they said this and this year and then a couple years later they said this and then they, they were like actually everyone is so far off of that mark anyways we're looking at a target that no one's even aiming at and this is how the food science conversation typically goes right and so this is why i think a if you're going to cover sodium an article on actual salt would have been more would have been more informational mm. in my eyes because you still you leave that you're like okay well, I'm going to go eat a teaspoon of salt. What kind of salt? They sh- they have a picture of a bunch of unrefined, beautiful salts, but they don't actually talk about them. <laughs> so that's my issue. Moving on. Um, they did a huge article on sugar. There's not much I had to say here. I mean, they did some interesting experiments where, um, you know, they call out high fructose corn syrup being terrible for you. They, oh, no kidding. Yeah, I, I, think, I think we've all agreed on that. Um, do, you, do you remember... There was once a time, there was once a time there was a commercial, uh, I don't remember what it was for, but the commercial went something along the lines of, it's made with high fructose corn syrup. And then it was like, it shows someone that you go, oh! mm-hmm. and then they go, what's wrong with that? And she said, high fru- she says, high fructose corn syrup is bad for you. And the person says, why? Because it's made of corn. And the lady kind of looks around and she goes, and they kind of like look at each other. And there's this like there's this moment of like oh that is stupid that we think that high fructose corn syrup is bad for you. I will say they had me. I was like, <laughs> they do show a kernel it's freaking of, corn of like sweet corn. Too. And I'm thinking like dude, if you go out there and like mash up some sweet corn and put that in your soda, yeah, that that make it taste sweeter. Talk to me about what what is high fructose corn syrup? High fructose corn syrup is uh, fructose is the type of sugar. I know what fructose is. Oh. I'm saying, what what is high fructose corn syrup, and why is it not actually just corn mashed up in a mortar and pestle and then filtered out into a juice that you can sweeten? Your you stuff know, with? I've I've never seen it made. Because I just feel like we're we're always kind of talking about it, and I don't even know if I actually know how it's made. Yeah, I would I would love to learn that process, although I don't want to consume it. Why? Um. All right, I'll just read from the article: high fructose corn syrup and. Table sugar, sucrose, so fructose and sucrose, um, are both comprised of two smaller sugar molecules, glucose and fructose, in roughly equal portions. High fructose corn syrup and sucrose are virtually chemically equivalent, says most scientists and doctors. It puts that in parentheses. The glucose part is fine. It's the body's preferred fuel. We've heard about that before. The body burns glucose. That's why after a workout, if you have a little bit of sugar in your protein shake, like not actual sugar, but like the sugars from milk or whatever, Mm -hmm. the maple syrup, it's good for you. Um, The glucose part is fine, says uh, this person quoted in the article. That's the type that the body prefers. That runs most smoothly in the billions of cells in our body. But it's the fructose part is the, quote, chronic poison, he says. It doesn't kill you after one fructose meal. 
but it kills you after 10,000. The problem is that every meal is now a fructose meal. High fructose corn syrup is added um, to processed foods. It's found its way into everything from pretzels to ketchup. Okay, so the person that they're interviewing in this uh, article, see if I can see where they mentioned him the first time. I believe he's an MD at something. Okay, here we go. Uh, The researcher Robert Lustig, MD, a pediatric endocrinologist at the University of California, San Francisco. Okay, so they're basically using his work on um, sugar to talk about it. So, in his opinion, fructose is poison. So, when you say, why is high fructose corn syrup bad for you? Well, it contains the wrong type of fuel, the sugars that we need for our body to run on. So, it tastes good. We just don't process it well. Yeah, and as he's saying, like... it actually looks the same under a microscope, but it's not the same type of sugar that, that mm. our body needs to, to okay. create fuel from. So um, the sugar article in general, like I didn't, I don't really disagree. Like I don't think that we have any problem saying, hey, Americans need to stop eating so much refined sugar. Mm-hmm. And that's what that category is. High fructose corn syrup is a refined sweetener. Yeah. Same with like, the crystal white sugar cube, like even on this image, is refined. Mm-hmm. Anytime you have sugar cane or sugar beets, um, that's a refined sugar. And so, yes, we need to cut down on that. It's in so much stuff. Uh-huh. If you turn around and read your labels, and you can see like added sugar too, not just something that's naturally occurring like in an apple. Um, my one issue with this article was when they talk about the sweet choices at the end, which is, again, they're sort of like soft recommendations. They mm-hmm. talk about granulated sugar, which is just made from sugar beets or sugar cane. Yeah. They talk about honey, which is fine. Mm. They talk about molasses, brown sugar, which is just granulated sugar and molasses. Mm. And then they talk about date sugar. They, they miss maple syrup, which is my favorite type of sweetener. They miss um, maple sugar, which is just crystallized versions of that. And, you know, if I'm going to nitpick, I'm going to say, like, I would probably have left the granulated sugar piece out. But, um, yeah, at the end of the article, they're basically saying they talk about this. um, I think it was like a TED talk or a lecture or something that, like, went really viral. And there's some people that have come out against it saying, like, ah, sugar's not that bad. So, again, you can see you can quantify any kind of data and make use it to back your claim but have you ever gone a season where you cut out sugar intentionally no. you no. never have never never cut out refined sugars what's her well i mean like only eating fruit or like a maple syrup or something well i don't really know that i eat very much white sugar anyway well i don't think you do now i've definitely gone through a phase where i specifically cut out refined sugar yeah. Like when we did paleo. Like for, where would I be eating refined sugar? Well, nowadays it's different. But like back in the day, anything like your candy bars or oh, um, in your ketchup, like it's it's everywhere. Got now it. that our house is a little bit tighter, um, you're probably not running into a lot. But I, there's you, you feel different Okay. You when do. you're cutting that out. Okay. And so that's a hard one for me to like say. Like Mountain Dew probably has refined Oh, candy. yeah. That's high fructose corn syrup for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Uh, the sugar piece is, again, yes, let's call it out. Let's talk about how Americans are over-consuming sugar. Let's talk about how we're consuming the wrong type of fuel for our bodies. Mm. We're not consuming that beautiful glucose. Um, 
and it's a real problem, and, and I don't disagree with that. So that, that article, 6 out of 10. Six out of ten. Yeah. Oh, I should be reading these. I honestly, um, they did a whole article on alcohol. I skimmed it. It was basically saying that um, women's alcohol consumption has severely increased. (laughs) So I was like, yep. That's (laughs) like your mommy wine culture right there. And honestly, I I was going to read it, but I was like, I don't have a ton of interest in this subject right now. I I agree. I, I think that in general, I, I see heavy to moderate consumption pretty normalized. Mm. People in their 20s and 30s, it's normal. Have a couple of drinks, have a couple of drinks a night. Like, I just see that a lot. Mm. So, um, again, I didn't really have anything to comment there. I don't feel like I know a ton about alcohol and its effect on mm. the body. We need to get somebody on the podcast that's like an expert. I would love to. Yeah, I would love to. Um, I am going to say, like, I... I try to mindfully consume alcohol. I try to not consume alcohol on an empty stomach. I try to, Mm. like if I'm drinking a wine or I want it to be naturally fermented, I want it to be low sugar, low alcohol. There's, there's like parameters I feel like I put in place. And I guess in my own kind of mental justification, because I feel like I have those kind of standards, like I don't really want to read about, you know, the overconsumption of like, who knows what kind of alcohol people in these studies are consuming so how can i compare i don't know there's just i bet you reading it there could be something but like if you don't know exactly what how can you tell yeah they're not they're not tracking like she had a bud light versus like Mm. i don't even know a naturally fermented glass of red wine i don't know it's like if you're drinking okay so you make an interesting point but i'm gonna articulate it differently because I do like alcohol and I'm down to talk about it. But here's my thoughts. <laughs> Oftentimes, right, so I'm drinking bourbon. I don't know if bourbon has major negative effects on me or not. But it's just bourbon. It, it comes in a bottle. I pour it into a glass. I drink it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll drink the wine that we get. For me, I'm like, wine's been around. For a long time. Since like Jesus, right? <laughs> And yeah. before probably yeah <laughs> anyways sorry um I, you know that th- there's some versions of alcohol i think this is the point that you're making is that they're the beverage the consumption of beverages can have different impact mm-hmm. which i think is obvious i think everybody knows that right if you're mixing bourbon in coca-cola that if that that beverage now affects you differently than just the bourbon. Right, right. However, I think what I'd like to learn, and I think that what, this is probably not what the the article is is saying, which is what you're trying to say. I would like to learn, like straight up, no additives, what effects alcohol can have on your system, and and, and like as a new as something. From like the nutritional point of view, if I am consuming something alcoholic, regardless of the additives, right? Take additives aside. Somehow we're drinking, you know, 200 proof uh, straight up alcohol <laughs> um, in very, very small quantities. That You know, what would that like? Is, is that going to have a negative impact aside from the, you know, possibly addictive things and the you know if you get really weight i mean you could hurt your liver like there's stuff i know you can do but i'm saying is there a modest amount of alcohol that's 
maybe appropriate? Is it not appropriate? I, I think Andrew Huberman uh, speaks on this from a neuroscience perspective, and he's not a fan. Not a fan of alcohol? No. Okay. No, he doesn't hate on people that drink. I think he just says, like, hey, it does impair mental functionality, and this is how. And mm-hmm. I don't Again, I didn't read the full article, so I can't even comment on it. Interesting. Well, that's where I'd like to get to, and I know that we're not going to have that today, but uh, I'm tracking with you. I do place it in a category because at the end of the day, it's a fermented food. Not mm. not this. I'm not taking this where you think I'm taking it. Um, it's it's something that is a byproduct of fermentation. So I'm like, like if you read, I actually watched a documentary on alcohol at one point, and it was like, you know, these guys early colonial year, years were like drinking a beer at breakfast and a beer at lunch but like if you actually read it wasn't like high alcoholic it was probably the amount of like a kombucha right it has alcohol content it was a fermented beverage got it and so because like kombucha is alcoholic right right it had minimal and amounts the, yeah because it's a byproduct of fermentation but that's so, what i'm trying to say is like like alcohol consumption at all something that we should try to avoid as people I don't know. Let's get someone on the podcast. That's what I mean. Because, like, there's kombucha, there's bourbon, there's Everclear. You got shine. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's too much for me. Okay, so the next article is talking all about food labels. Um, it's called Keep It Real. Convenience foods have their upside, but navigating all the aisles of boxes, bottles, ba- and bags can be tricky. Here's how to spot an overly processed option and go for the good stuff. Okay, so this whole next article is on food labels, which I think I've said on here, like, it's fine. We can teach people how to read food labels. I just wish we'd be teaching people how to eat food without labels, like single ingredient foods that we then prepare to make meals. Although, you know, that's really idealistic. And to say, like, if I flip over a box of crackers, (laughs) I need to know how to read that. Yeah. I need to know how to decipher the nutrition facts on a packaged food. That's a good point. You don't, like, turn around the package of an apple. Right, there is none. Yeah, there's no food. Well, imagine label. if there was. Then I guess you would be reading into the nutrient quality of that specific apple, but you, how would you know unless you were getting it actually tested? Um, you know what I mean? Like nutrient for nutrient, you wouldn't know. Yeah. It, it you went differs. very scientific. I was going very sarcastic and thinking like oh. bionic apple. You know, yeah, I wasn't reading that. Constructed. I wasn't really understanding that. Yeah, sorry. Um, so yeah, I mean, my overall thoughts on this article, a lot of it, I was like, guys, we can just avoid this confusion if we focus on whole real foods, which is the kind of the thing we'll wrap this podcast up is like, okay, how do we actually look for them? Mm. Um, I did think that it was funny that the very end, it talks about the history of food labels and it starts in 1862 talking about president Lincoln launching the USDA, which if you listen to the USDA podcast, um, we actually talk about Lincoln we talk about how we founded this and, and why, and all of the things around that. Um, then it goes into, you know, it jumps from 1862 to 1958, so almost 100 years. The FDA publishes the first list of food substances and additives generally recognized as safe. You see that as the gross, um, like, thing. That's that's what formula falls under, gross. It's, like, generally recognized as safe. Um, then you have, like, Food Packaging and Labeling Act requires all consumers in interstate commerce, commerce to be honest and informational um including labeled on food i was 
reading that weird um, nutrition facts panels kind of get a couple different updates over the couple years and uh, 2010 the USDA requires cuts of meat to display nutrition on the package it's kind of an interesting one because that would be like a single ingredient food but I guess for fat content it's helpful for them um, I mean, like, if they're curing it, too, or if they're putting, like, nitrates or preservatives or things like that on there, like, do they have to put that on the package? For sure, for sure. And I guess that's that's that was the, the funny point I was trying to make that you didn't catch on the apple. <laughs> I said bionic, but, like, whatever you would call an apple that is tampered with, mm-hmm. right? And you'd have to have something that identifies that you put those things in the apple rather than you just look at the back of the package and it says apple, you know? Right. Anyways. Remember the raw apple conversation? I do remember the raw, uh, you know. The raw dairy. Sometimes our jokes hit, sometimes they don't. <laughs> it's just one of those off days. <sighs> it's probably because it's late at night. Anyways, th- overall, <laughs> um, I feel like we kind of cover this in the previous USDA podcast. Uh, there wasn't a ton on here. I talked about packaging. Um, I believe this was the article that talked about the the research they did when they gave someone a shake and they said hey this shake is going to be like really satiating and delicious Mm. here go take go drink this and then they'd give a second group the exact same shake and be like hey this is lean and packed with protein or whatever and they would then track like okay who felt hungrier sooner Mm. even though the nutrient quality was exactly the same Mm. talks about the psychological effect of what you believe about your food and how that truly impacts like your hunger cues later on Mm. so i've been trying to i guess that is one thing i gleaned from this article is like i've been trying to it might sound a little kooky but like when i make a protein shake and I'm like, I'm like, man, this is gonna be so nourishing to me. It's gonna be so satiating. I can't wait. And instead of being like, oh, all I have time for is a protein shake right now. And I just, you know, I feel like my psychological view of that food and when you consume it, it actually is triggering the chemicals that are traveling through my body and and telling me the physiological reality. Yeah. So there's a crossover between our beliefs about food and how our body's actually processing mm-hmm. food. And this article kind of talks about that and how important packaging is and in, in our in our like assumption about what we're eating, mm. right? If you're eating a Twix bar and you're like, man, this is really salty and delicious and crunchy and I love it versus like the same Twix bar, but you were told it was like lower fat and like a healthier version, you wouldn't have as high like dopamine levels as you're eating it if you have like the healthier version because you're like, oh man, this isn't hitting as hard mm. as like a normal Twix would. <laughs> so isn't that interesting? That's like the Paula Deen effect. Exactly. I was trying to say it before. Circle it back. It all comes back to Paula. Oh, bless. Okay, we got to move on here because this is taking a while. So uh, chapter three of the, pod, uh, the podcast. It is chapter three of the podcast. Chapter three of this magazine is called The Power of Plant-Based. And this is where all of my biases are confirmed. That this is just an incredibly plant-based leaning um, production. Uh, And frustratingly so, because the articles in this section, um, headlines here, the meatless difference, vegetarian eating has been linked to protection against a variety of conditions and illnesses. Here are some potential benefits. Mm. Number one, lower your risk of heart disease. Why? 
because you have lower intakes of saturated fat, so you have lower cholesterol. But if you already read the fat article, you would know that that thing went back and forth, swinging like a pendulum. Mm. Does saturated fat cause increased cholesterol? No, yes, no, whatever. Um, your blood pressure will improve. You'll get leaner. You Your risk of diabetes will go down. And you may protect yourself against cancers and diseases. So they're going right off the bat here, just mm. like slinging all of your like medical terminology. Mm. You're going to be so healthy, so fit, so lean. If all you, you have eat, to eat is cabbage. If you eat the green. Yeah, I'm looking at a, a freaking picture of broccoli and romaine lettuce. I mean... I couldn't buy enough romaine lettuce to say she, I just, I can't live off romaine lettuce. Nobody can. So then it gives you the spectrum, right? Vegetarian, you can go semi-meatless. You can be a pesco vegetarian, which like still eats meat and consumes milk. I actually, for two or three years, was a pescatarian mm. for all the wrong reasons. And um, I did. I, I avoided red meat and, and I felt okay about eating a dead fish, but not a cow or a chicken or a pig or whatever other protein there might be. Um, and so it, it kind of breaks down things that you should consider. So if you fall in the semi-meatless category, you have some meat, some poultry, some fish, some milk and eggs and fruit. Um, you might need a multivitamin just to ensure that you're overall good. If you dial all the way to the other end of that spectrum and you're a vegan and you eat fruits and vegetables, legumes and whole grains, um, you should consider a multivitamin to make sure you're getting adequate B12, which everyone knows that's a vegan's uh, hardest nutrient to get. Your iron, your calcium, your vitamin D, and your omega-3 fatty acids, which are incredibly important. So to say, hey, consume this, make sure also you're supplementing with these vital nutrients. It makes you wonder, especially since this very article brought up the point of eat like they did like a while ago where the heck were they supplementing yeah where were they getting the multivitamins they weren't that's a great point point. and you know what <clears throat> i've brought this up before because i'll have discussions with people sometimes it's a bad thing because i don't really know much <laughs> but i feel things and i get frustrated you feel the anger and people will come up to me I, I, dear, in my office and just in my world being vegan is is like the thing to do mm -hmm. and i don't care like that much i mean if someone else if someone else around me decides they want to go vegan I'm, I'm not like i'm not gonna go like hit them with you know a homegrown education workbook you know what i mean maybe i will <laughs> i won't I anyways hit anyone but okay anyways they i'll ask them you know hey you know you might know more about this than i do but I'm learning through my wife and some of the stuff that she does and this podcast that we do that, you know, it's possible that you're missing out on some vitamins by being, being vegan. And I will get the response that, well, beans are a complete protein. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'll say, oh. How many beans do you eat in a week? I, I, I just, people will tell me like, well, you know, just we, we get plenty of as much protein as we need. And, um, you know. There's plenty of available things out there to stay, you know, good to go, right? Yeah. People that aren't using multivitamins. Even though the recommendation is if you're a vegan for three years or longer, you should absolutely be supplementing with vitamin B12 because you cannot get that from plant foods. So you can't get it from beans? No, they're just talking about protein. 
No, they're not talking. They're not dialing in vitamin B. Got it. Um, uh, yeah. So <laughs> there's a section in this article that says you're going to save money if you cut out meat. And this is what it says. If you buy a pound of flank steak, that is the equivalent of 200 grams of protein. So a pound of flank steak. Mm. What would you say is an average serving of flank steak? And a recommended serving is three ounces of meat, but that's kind of low. I don't know, four to six ounces. I'd maybe? say we consume four to six ounces of meat per meal. Yeah. How many ounces in a pound? Twelve. Sixteen. Uh, Sixteen. Sixteen. <laughs> Twelve ounces in a cup. Yeah, yeah. So sixteen ounces. So sixteen in a pound. ounces in a pound. So roughly four servings, maybe two servings if you're eating that full six ounce mm-hmm. serving, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Well, two and a half. Two and a half. Two okay. Two and some. <laughs> Why do we always do math live here? Well, it's like, so if it's four ounces, you'd get four servings. It's four times four is 16. That's what I said. Four, maybe two. But if it's six ounces, you'd get, you know, two, and then you've got... A couple. Linger. Yeah. So we're talking about four to six servings of protein. So this wants to break it down by 200 grams of protein, but we're saying, like, divided by two to six, right? Um, is about the cost of seven to ten dollars. So a pound of flank steak costs you about seven to ten bucks, two hundred grams protein versus Is it that much protein? Do a pound? Two hundred grams. Yeah, it's very dense. That's a lot. Right. Okay. You could also eat one pound of black beans plus two and a half pounds of brown rice. And it says which together contain about 200 grams of complete vegetarian protein and cost about five dollars how many servings do you think are in two pounds of black beans and two and a half pounds of brown rice this is dry quantities can you imagine well so okay so i actually did the math on this but it's on my computer that just got rained on so i can't actually find it but six ounces of beans Let's say we're doing the same. A recommended serving of beans is a quarter to a half cup cooked. Which is probably what? Three ounces? I think one pound of beans is like six to nine cups. Six to nine cups? I don't want to get in the weeds here about the math because like I said, we always get it wrong. I want to paint the picture. You're talking. It feels like a lot of beans. You're talking about a pound of (laughs) flank steak. Say you have family coming over. Say you're going to Chipotle. (laughs) And you want to get your beans and rice in. You're like, yo, how much is the equivalent of a full and pound? And you walk in, then you say, listen, I'm going to go ahead and need... Give me the inventory and the stock and the stock. You see, that, you see that third pan of rice you got there? I'm going to go ahead and need you to pour the whole thing into my bowl. Actually, just give me that third pan. <laughs> <laughs> pour the beans in there, too. So this is why it's so frustrating to me when people are like, nutrient for nutrient, it's the freaking same. Let's talk about the portion and the quantity. Are you going to tell me that you're going to sit down? First of all, this this band two of pounds of rice is a lot of rice. Um, two and a half pounds of brown rice and two pounds of black. Dry beans. or cooked? It's all dry. Two and yeah, a half. That's a lot of rice. That's of like rice. that's like a whole family. I. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so imagine you are cooking for someone. You're like, hey, we're gonna have a family over. Let's cook up. I couldn't even get away with cooking one pound flank steak for our family. We would need more than that. I feel like I feel like one pound of rice. That, 
I mean, we, our whole family wouldn't even need all that. No. So that's what I'm saying. When they're saying, hey, you can save money because you can get 200 grams of protein from this flank steak, yeah. or you, which is like 50 to 80 I grams protein per serving. I get it. Versus like you'd have to eat mm-hmm. your entire body's weight for You'd have to eat so and much beans, beans and rice to just... To get the yeah. same amount of protein. Then how many calories are you intaking? It's a bad comparison. They made a bad comparison. It's a terrible comparison. Yeah. Okay. And yet it's the one that's often made. That's why when you said, yeah, beans are a complete protein. Yeah, because that's that's the one thing you guys got. Every other plant, plant, well, I'm plant not the person that's <laughs> protein doesn't contain every single amino acid. That's mm. the difference. Incomplete, incomplete protein. Does it have all the amino acids? Mm. Yes or no? Mm. Got it. Animal foods, guess what? They got them. Mm. They're complete proteins. Plant yeah. foods, no. They can. But they we still can. need things from vegetables too, right? So it's. Yes, and I'm glad you brought that point. So we're going to move on from my frustration. They go into like diving into each type of plant, which I think is fine and educational. Talk about cruciferous vegetables. I was a little annoyed that they didn't ever talk about the potential plant toxins, that they didn't talk about neutralizing some of those things, but I wouldn't expect that from such a mainstream publication. Um, I do think in general folks like maybe aren't as well-versed with like a beautiful leek or um what is this right here this purple it's an undive uh, yes yes see uh, right there even i didn't know um i do think some of the imagery and the breaking down of different produce groups is good mm-hmm. because it gives you some like introduction into maybe things that people aren't eating and um they have a whole section on bitter um bitter plants and how those can be great for digestion and all sorts of things and it just goes on and on and on. And so there's a ton of recipes, right? And and the thing I, I w- see the end of this is just recipes and yes, and fiber. And then let's talk about beans. There's a whole section on beans. Like what, I, what is a natural fiber? What do you mean? Like where do you get na- where do you get fiber from naturally? Plant foods mostly. And that's like a, what? That's like what would be a really high fiber plant food? Oh, I believe like your broccolis and oh really? Um, I, I mean, I think when I'm thinking high fiber, I'm thinking. Um, my leafy greens. I believe. Do you remember? Do you remember a time when I feel like I should Google this? There was a there was cereal that 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 would like boast how high in fiber it was, mm-hmm. and I remember just thinking to myself, "Do I need more fiber?" <laughs> That's a good question. You know what I mean? I don't know that you would need more fiber like, in your diet right now. Um, but if do you know what I'm talking about? There's like cereal that was that was like it's because it's the one thing they got. Your three daily doses of fiber in one bowl. And it was like, what does that mean? We're we just eating cardboard. This and is saying beans, lentils, raspberries, Brussels sprouts, apples. It's all plant food: broccoli. Um, okay. Brussels sprouts, broccoli, raspberries, high in fiber. It's this is. I mean, I'm just throwing you what Google's right on. throwing up right now. Just as they're okay. Sorry, fiber was interesting because I just feel like it's one of those things where. Sometimes if, if people haven't talked about a specific thing in a while. They bring it up. They bring it up and say, well, I'm getting you, my fiber you in. haven't heard of this thing in a while. And it's like, oh, no. You know, it's funny. Uh, I was just talking to someone about a podcast where they had a, a really awesome, like, real food author on there. And they were, the podcast interviewer was vegan. And he gave him everything. He's like, all right, this is what I'm eating today. How am I doing, Max? And Max was like, well, you've definitely got your daily intake of fiber because you're eating basically all plant foods, but you're missing your protein, your da 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 and he listed off all these other things. So I think that tends to be the thing that we cling on to is like, oh, it's got fiber. It's like any nutrient. To me, I'm like... What does fiber do for cardboard? you? Well, it helps um, 
you know, helps regulate your digestive system because it gives you some mass to help push through. And I, I think that there's some benefit to it. I think. Nice. I think plant foods can be incredibly beneficial to your gut microbiome. Mm. And especially fermented plant foods. And that's why I said, like, I wish they kind of would have gotten into some plant food preparation mm. because you can have really beautiful plant foods that are fermented or pickled or um, at least cooked down in like fat so that you yeah. can even assimilate some of their vitamins. But they don't talk about that in this because, again, it, it's it's got some holes in yeah, it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, they do a whole thing on whole grain, which, again, I'm going to say the same argument, like, we're not talking about preparation of grains here. We're just talking about whole grains. It's like, let's stay surface level. Mm, okay. It, but uh, the thing I want to circle back to um, the point you just made, right? Because you said, well, we need some plant foods. Yeah. You made a comment like that. And, and I think so often people in this like ancestral food space can tend to negate the benefits of eating like fruits and vegetables and sometimes we can be like oh we can go hardcore carnivore we can we can and there are people that that thrive on that diet to me that's another version of a restrictive diet i don't personally have a, a a lean towards carnivore but like i think sometimes we can um praise so heavily the nutrient density of our animal foods and forget that we also need some of the nutrients from our plant foods and so that's why i like the way that strong sisters broke it down in our episode with them is like hey let's get our um nutrient density from our animal foods our animal products our milk our eggs our meat our muscle meats um our organ meats and our stocks and broths and then let's get our source of energy from our plant foods, right? Our beautiful glucose that we love to burn and mm-hmm. all the other things that we need. I like that balance. I feel like they do a really good job balancing that in sort of the foods mm-hmm. that they're sharing on their account. And so that was one caveat to this whole conversation of, hey, we're obviously seeing a really big plant-based lean. It can be um, pretty common for us to just like go all one side or the other, right? Super polarizing. No, you need animal foods. Yeah, we also need plant foods. Mm -hmm. Um, The one saving grace of this article, they did a full, um, of this whole magazine is they did a full article on regenerative agriculture, specifically grass-fed beef. Um, They talked about the Savory Institute, which Mm -hmm. was founded by a guy named Alan Savory, who's kind of like the the grandfather of regenerative ag um and they do they talk about the you know they get a lot of things right they talk about the carbon sequestration they talk about the need for ruminant animals in our agricultural system they talk about how these folks are um converting these desert areas back to beautiful rich grasslands simply by bringing animals on Hmm. to walk on the ground to like excrete on the ground to like bring in then like the dung beetle that then brings in the birds that eats the beetle that then continues that cycle and kind of repopulates that ecosystem. What if they had just a bunch of different writers? Oh, they did. Yeah. So it's almost like everyone wanted to infuse everyone their gave their thing. take. Everyone gave their take. Yeah, and and whoever Barry Estabrook is who wrote the Beyond Grass Fed article. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. There was nothing like I. There's nothing I learned for the first time reading the article, but I appreciated the highlight of the importance of these prairie lands. I appreciate mm-hmm. that they talked about the bison that used to roam on yeah, these lands yeah. and, and everything that we've kind of talked about in the documentaries we've we've mentioned before and yeah. and all that. So 
yeah, to wrap up, um, that's the end of the article, or that's the end of the magazine. Um, I would like to just leave with sort of the lens that you and I look at food through, because again, reading this and how confusing was the stupid 40, 3,400 milligrams of sodium? Like at the end of the day, how are you actually going to apply that? Yeah. Are you going to? Are you going to measure out your teaspoon of salt? No. I'm telling you right now, I eat a lot more than a teaspoon of salt a day. Is that how much it is? Yeah. It's insane. That seems low. So here's, here's kind of how we look at it. I want to take in history. I want to take in the historical context of food. I want to like good, bad, and the ugly, right? We The blue zones is mentioned in this magazine. And oftentimes the blue zones can be perceived as very plant forward. But there were no cultures that had access to animal foods that were like, nah, just kidding. We don't need that. When they got animal foods, they, they satiated themselves and they were thankful for those animal mm. foods. Whether or not they were common or rare, there's no culture that was like, hey, I have access to this beautiful bioavailable protein no thanks Mm. just doesn't exist except for today um so take into historical context um let's take into the um let's look at the systems right that are enabling these foods how are these foods getting to us is it through a grocery store is it through a manufacturing plant is it through genetic modification Mm. is it through monocropping agricultural system like, if we're going to look at what the dietary advice is being imposed on us, and yet every single thing is due to an industrialized commercial model, I'm going to have some questions there. Like, what are you talking about? I should eat that canola oil versus the butter. And then it all kind of comes back to our definition of real food, which is simple. Is it naturally occurring? Is it nutrient-dense, meaning it's got some bang for its buck? And is it either denatured or refined in a way that makes it um, no longer its best optimal choice? Mm. So I don't talk about processing because plenty of foods need processed. I think sometimes people are like, oh, processed foods. Cheese is a processed food, right? Cheese is milk that undergoes a process that becomes food. When you're talking about packaged processed foods, that's going to be a different category. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, curing a meat is a process, right? And that's okay. It's that, that's not, it's not like d- refining it to the point where it's no longer has its benefits anymore. It's actually just a method to preserve the meat. It's almost like altered foods. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, because processing meat from animal to steaks to burger. Right. I mean, we use that term sausage, processing all the time. You're processing it. But when you alter something wherein it was once, you know, one thing and now it's another you've changed it yeah that's different and that's where that's where i like those two terms refining meaning like the critical components are taken out not like a positive like a character refinement but like no we took out the butter milk the butter fat and now we give you two percent milk stripped that's a refine yeah. yeah and then the denatured portion right so either we've tampered with this food so much that it's no longer in its whole form mm-hmm. it's it's not available to us anymore and so like refined sugar and flour are great examples and then obviously dairy we talk about the denaturing process that goes on with commercial dairy and so anytime you're facing this mainstream dietary advice that 
seems to subtly weave in a very plant-forward agenda. We could talk about why, but I don't feel like getting into that right now. I just think if we take it back to those simple defining characteristics, we can sort of weed out everything else. And we're not talking about like diagnosing specific We're not talking about like, hey, you have diabetes. Oh, just look at it through this lens. No, no, no. We're talking about, I just want to focus on foods to consume. I'm not even addressing a medical condition right now. I'm not even, um, I'm not looking at any of those specifics. At the end of the day, humans need to know what food is is biologically accessible to them. And Mm -hmm. we have gotten so far from understanding that, that we need someplace to start. So at the end of the day, I give this whole article like a four out of 10. Four out of 10? I was going to ask, man. I was worried that you weren't going to give me the number. <laughs> In terms of like the the amount of, of balanced journalism I find in here. I'm going to give it a four out of 10. I think it's one saving grace was that article on regenerative ag. I think it had some major room for improvement. And when it dials into specific nutrients, I think that cholesterol conversation could have happened a lot better in this piece. Mm. And um, honestly, that's kind of how I feel about, that's kind of how I feel about mainstream info in general four when it comes 10. to our... When it comes to our food, yeah, four out of ten. Because I think I think we're we got some major holes. So, right on. Well, um, we'll have to post a picture of the old magazine so people can see it, see what we're working with the the wreath of vegetables. That just about wraps it up for today, though, right? Yeah. You have anything else with the magazine? Right on. Well, hey, if you liked this episode, if you like hearing me try to figure out conversion rates from cups into quarts into pounds into ounces you can support the podcast you can support the podcast by leaving (laughs) by leaving us a review by by um sending us snarky happy remarks on instagram you can you can buy our resources we have resources we have things that are we call these 10 out of 10s 9 out of 10 maybe humility you know what i'll let other people score it you know what? There you go. Yeah. We have resources to be scored. We've got curriculum for your kids. You can find find those sorts of things on homegrowneducation.org. We have the Real Food Guide on there as well. That is for your adults, your teenagers. It is this magazine, but worded a little bit differently. Talking a little bit more about these definitions of real food that we have just discussed this idea of being nutrient dense naturally occurring is it denature refined you know what are we looking for let's talk about reading labels that sort of stuff we've also got coloring books got coloring books for your kids you know get some of those um, it supports farms around the country that are doing just that that regenerative farming and when i say that that's what i mean and um, some pretty cool stuff pretty pretty cool stuff there and uh, finally, what's for dinner? We've got a, we've got a, uh, you know, it's funny. I was at my, I was at my office today, and um, my mom's assistant or office manager, someone comes out, and says, "Hey, we need more, you know, of of uh, the what's for dinner book if you guys have them." Which I'd just given them a package of a bunch mm-hmm. that they didn't find. But anyways, um, she was, she was. Uh, very, she was saying that every time people come to her office, they're taking pictures of it. And there's, this is a very interesting cookbook. 
<laughs> and she was like, I just don't know if you're okay with people that, that open up. They're just taking pictures of the shopping lists. <laughs> uh, absolutely not. Okay with that. But that, you know what? What are we going to do? <laughs> no, it's great. I think it's that awesome. That is hysterical. <laughs> I am very okay with it. And I think it's fantastic. <laughs> do you know how much hard work I put into planning hey. a full week worth of meals and then consolidating that into a shopping list for someone? I guess they don't have the meals to go with it. but. Dude. People are just You like, know what? If you want a grocery shop on my dime, go for it, man. Get the grocery shop at home. Go for it. Um, but hey. You if, might not know how to use those leaks, though. If you, you haven't been into my mom's office to be able to take a picture <laughs> of the What's for Dinner book. Are people straight? Oh, that's hysterical. Um, you can you could buy your own. We sell those on our website. They're awesome, by the way. They have, as I just mentioned, uh, shopping lists and uh, recipes. That's not what I thought you were going to tell me. On, <laughs> dude, people are in, man. They're in, and uh, I think the reason Do they were doing it we is because there was no, recipe? there was none available for them. It wasn't just because they're savages, but no, maybe no, they no. are. Sure, I get it. Um, I gotta support you when you <laughs> slight plagiarism. It's fine, no big deal. Anyways, <laughs> what's for dinner helps you get into those rhythms. <laughs> Those rhythms of plagiarism. No, they help you get into those rhythms of um, cooking for your family, cooking for your family, foods. getting people around the dinner table. Whole we're, foods. we're always promoting that. If you want to hear me ramble about more, is sodium a mineral or a chemical? Yeah, yeah good stuff there. <laughs> if you want to tell me whether or not sodium is a it's mineral, it's a mineral, but it also is everything is a chemical, so it's both and. Continue on. You somebody, can find Joey. You can find me on Instagram to tell me that Elizabeth's wrong at Joey Hazelmeyer. And you can find Elizabeth at homegrown under, underscore education. Don't DM me because I probably won't answer <laughs> at this point. Everybody DM Elizabeth about the chemical that is sodium. sodium. Actually, a mineral. Both. Okay. All right. That's a wrap. That's a wrap.